with Jonah and, and several weeks here. And this morning, uh, it's, it's a short passage, Jonah chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. And Jonah is a famous book, but sometimes a little difficult to find. It's in the last half of the Old Testament, and it's in a whole bunch of small books. Jonah itself is only four chapters. Uh, but if you're in Psalm, just keep going Proverbs, and eventually you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, and just keep going. Then there's Amos and Obadiah and Jonah. Uh, you'll eventually get there. And, and like I said, it's, it's kind of uh, hard to find sometimes, but, uh, but it's a great book. As I mentioned, famous book. And uh, as we normally go into a new book, uh, it's going to be a short passage, and we'll get somewhat of an overview of Jonah. Uh, we get some history, and I like history. I know not everyone is that way, but uh, I like the history, and we'll kind of set the scene a little bit so we can learn. Uh, there is a lot to be learned uh, from the book of Jonah. And so uh, with that, uh, let me read Jonah uh, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for their precepts and their promises, their direction and, and the light we get from Scripture. In them may we learn more of Christ and be enabled to retain his truth and have the grace to follow your truth, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you ever decide to uh, learn Hebrew, uh, the language, and uh, mostly it's people who go to seminary that are the only ones that learn Hebrew, but others have. I mean, Reggie White, the great football player, uh, when he played with the Carolina Panthers, he, he went to Charlotte and he learned Hebrew just because he wanted to. And we all thought that was admirable of him. But, uh, but one of the first books you will go to as a professor will teach you through uh, the Hebrew language, it is Jonah. Uh, and there are several reasons for that. First of all, it's, it's nice for professors uh, as they teach you some basic things to, to have you in the Word and, and able to read it and hear it. And even if you don't understand everything, you, you kind of learn a little bit more about it as you go through it. And Jonah's actually very straightforward linguistically. Uh, there's not too many tricky parts in there. there there's a couple of things, but uh, it's somewhat straightforward and and fun, if you want to use that word in learning a language like Hebrew, uh, because there's some word play in there that you learn some basic words, like in, in verse 2, you see, arise, the Lord tells uh, Jonah to arise, and, and so he rose, but then he went down, and you see these uh, differences, and, and also there's 
a certain amount of, of structure. It's, it's very well structured and very artful, and, and that kind of comes out when you see a little bit of the Hebrew, and, and it kind of uh, will repeat itself a little bit. So things you've learned, you get again, just as an example of this, this is uh, some of the structure of Jonah. If you look at chapter 1 and then chapter 3, and the first verse of chapter 1 now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And, and you look at the first verse of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You, oh, you know, when you get to chapter 3, you're like, oh, I know this. I've, I've seen this before. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Verse 2 of chapter 3, arise, go to Nineveh. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, but, the, but Jonah rose to flee to a Tarshish, and verse 3 of chapter 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And you're like, yes, you're finally going the right way here, Jonah. Uh, so there's this structure that makes it fun to learn. And, and even in the Hebrew language, things come out more. But, but even more than that, uh, it's a great book to get started in because uh, there are so many lessons uh, in Jonah. And it really uh, speaks to the heart. And it kind of shows... The, the wide range, uh, if you will, of what can go on in our hearts. Uh, it's been noted by several, uh, if you uh, are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. And Jonah is both sons at one point. He's the son that flees. God tells him to do something, but he flees the other way. And then when Nineveh repents, He's the son that's angry that they repented. And, and so we see this full range from Jonah. And, and as I said, it kind of reveals a lot about us as we learn uh, from Jonah. Uh, one of the things uh, that we learn quickly when we study it is that it's more than a story about a fish. You know, that's the first thing you learn when you go to Sunday school and they teach you, and Jonah was swallowed by this fish, you know, and when you're seven years old, you're like, yes, this is awesome. A fish ate this guy? Uh, yeah, yeah, but there's more to it than that. In fact, the fish is just kind of briefly mentioned. And, you know, at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the fish just swallowed Jonah. And then he prays this prayer in chapter 2. And then at the end of chapter 2, the fish spits him out. And it just kind of stated matter-of-factly. Not a lot of detail in it. And then as far as the New Testament... And whenever we're in the Old Testament, I always like to see, all right, is there a New Testament reference to what's going on? And actually, Jesus uh, himself uh, talks about Jonah. Uh, he, he does in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 12. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what uh, is going on in, in Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. Uh, the Pharisees, of course, are arguing with Jesus. And uh, they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus answers, and he says this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And when we hear what Jesus says about Jonah and the fish and the people of Nineveh, it's pretty obvious Jesus 
is taking the account of Jonah very literally. And we will take the account of Jonah very literally. That's exactly how it's written. And so uh, we look at it and we see in verse 1 that the word of the Lord uh, came to Jonah. Now, a few things are going on here. Let's first of all get the context of of the history, if you will, at the time. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verse 23, it talks about a king named Jeroboam. Uh, he's the son of Joash, and he's the king of Israel, and he's a bad king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it also says in 2 Kings that he restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So, okay, now we have a time frame for Jonah. It's uh, somewhere uh, around the time of 793 B.C. Uh, to 753 B.C. That's where uh, Jeroboam uh, was uh, leading Israel. He's a bad king. Israel is bad. In fact, uh, if you were to look at the book of I or uh, I'm sorry, Amos, uh, just back a couple of books, and you look at Amos, uh, the first verse, it talks about uh, Amos and uh, in the days, he's prophesying in the days of Uzziah, but also in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So it's the same guy, but if you look at Amos and Hosea would be the same, uh, in chapter 2, uh, you see, in starting at verse 4, there's judgment on Judah, and then in verse 6, there's judgment on Israel. And as Amos writes, he's pretty harsh on Israel. They're walking away from the Lord, and there's guilt and punishment in chapter 3, and, and this idea continues in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, and, and this talk of judgment on Israel because they are rejecting God. Um, at the time that uh, Jonah and, and Amos are writing this, uh, things are decent. Uh, they have wealth. Uh, things are fairly calm politically, uh, but they're living with this false sense of security. They are walking away from the Lord. They are doing wicked in the Lord's eyes. And uh, some of the nations around them, Egypt is, is a little less in power than they've been. There's Babylon and, and Assyria, but things are, are calm and and Assyria especially is the one that, that uh, Jonah and Israel would be happy is somewhat subdued at this point. Uh, because Assyria, I should say, um, they're mean. And Nineveh, when he's told to go to Nineveh, that is the capital city of Assyria. And it's off to the east. Uh, there's Israel, and if you have a map, you see off to the east, there's Nineveh. Uh, it's the most powerful uh, or, uh, the most powerful city uh, in the ancient Near East at, at this point in history. Uh, as I mentioned, the capital of Assyria. And now Assyria is going to eventually destroy Israel or, or take the ten tribes. Babylon will finish off the rest. But, but Assyria is going to destroy Israel. Um, and they've been a menace for a while. Uh, they, they've been encroaching on borders, and they've been exacting money from them and, and, or taxing them, if you want, and uh, just so they could remain peaceful. But 
but but they've been leaning on Israel throughout history, and that's been going on for for decades actually. But here's the thing: Assyria is extremely cruel, extremely cruel. In fact, uh, one archaeologist writes as gory and blood curdling a history as we know, and they were proud of it. Uh, they had leaders in Assyria, and looking back at some of the things that they had done, you think, who are these monsters? Uh, could someone really be that cruel? Uh, just, just one uh, example that I will give you that I feel somewhat safe saying, but don't use your imagination too much on this, um, but just one uh, act of their cruelty and, and torture is uh, in battle, uh, when they went in to take cities, it was, it was horrible, but in battle, on the battlefield, if they uh, defeated an opponent, uh, what they would do is uh, they would cut off both legs of that opponent and cut off one of their arms, and they would leave the other arm attached so they could shake their hand, mocking them as they died. Cruel, cruel people. And so God comes and tells Jonah, go there. <laughs> go there? <laughs> go there? Uh, call out against it? I mean, there was relative peace going on, but you want me to go there and tell them that they're evil? Call out against it? Here's this Jewish prophet from Israel, and, and Assyria and Israel, they weren't friends at all. And you want me to go there? I mean, talk about stirring the hornet's nest or poking the bear or waking the sleeping giant. Whatever metaphor you want to use, he's doing it all. Go there and call out against it? But God says, for their evil has come up before me. Let them know that I see everything they're doing. They are a cruel, wicked, torturous people, and I want you to go there and tell him I'm seeing all of this. And he doesn't really uh, hold back, the Lord doesn't, as he tells Jonah this. Uh, in verse 2, when he says, arise and go, um, those words are what we call imperatives. Uh, you could put an exclamation mark behind those words, arise, go. And when they're put two imperatives together, uh, it's it's extremely impactful. Go immediately if, if you wanted to use that, or, or go, go, really, don't hesitate. Uh, in fact, when it says call out against it, that's also an imperative. Go, call out, do it right now. Um, it's, it's showing just the urgency of this command. And by the way, uh, God would do this uh, quite often with prophets. When he told them to go, he would give them imperatives. You go right now, immediately, do this. He says, go, arise, go. And it's a daunting mission, but it's not ambiguous at all. God is being pretty clear. This isn't one of those cases where Jonah can say, all right, uh, God, here, let's, uh, I'm a little fuzzy on this. Let's get on the same page. And, and no, none of that. There's none of this idea, and you've probably seen this at work or school where a boss or teacher or maybe a coach uh, gives a, a, something tough for someone to do, and then they do something else pretending that's what they thought they were being asked to do. You've seen that game being played before. Uh, Jonah can't play this game. 
He knows exactly what God is telling him, and that's the reason for his uh, response uh, as he reacts the way he does. And the thing with Jonah, if it were only his safety that he were worried about, we could have a little bit of sympathy. We'd say, yeah, this is a pretty tough task to go to a place like that with this kind of message. But what we find as we go through Jonah, it's not about his safety. we got a real heart issue going on. And we're going to find that out as we uh, look uh, through the book of Jonah. But Jonah's uh, given this command, go to Nineveh, uh, that great big city, great big fortified, powerful city, and call out against it. And, and, um, and Jonah rose, but he doesn't go to Nineveh, at least not right away. But who's Jonah? All right, we, we talked a little bit about the Assyrians and Nineveh. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about Jonah. Uh, as I mentioned, um, contemporaries would include Amos and Hosea, and, and there's you know, writings of, of them as well. And, and while Amos and Hosea would criticize Israel and warn Israel and, and, and criticize the kings and warn the kings and talk about God's coming judgment, Jonah wasn't so much that way. Jonah had a, a little different mindset. Uh, Timothy Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, uh, writes this. The original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist, and they would have been amazed that God would send a man like that to preach to the very people he most feared and hated. Uh, R.C. Sproul uses the term national pride when he talks about uh, Jonah. And here's what Jonah knows, that uh, Israel is, at this time, is, is the covenant people. They are God's chosen people, and he was very proud of that and very happy about that and, and very firm in that. But it blinded him, as uh, R.C. Sproul would later say, uh, to see the grand scope of God's grace. He had a good grasp of who, um, uh, who his people were and that they were the people that God had chosen, but he failed to see that God is a great God of grace and mercy. And so we see in verse 3 that he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In fact, uh, this is one of those kind of fun things uh, when you're learning Hebrew, when he, he rose, and just the way it's written in the Hebrew, you see uh, in verse 2, God said, arise. And then in verse 3, actually the first word is that rose word, and then Jonah's the second word. So you see, oh, he arose, Jonah, and you're thinking, oh, he's going to do the right thing. And then, no, he goes to Tarshish. He flees, and he's going west. Nineveh's out here in the east, and he's going west, uh, the exact opposite direction that he should be going. And, um, and he found a ship, it says in verse 3. And that's another great word, this, this finding a ship. And what's implied in that is, is that this is a completely unplanned. Uh, you could translate that almost, he met by chance, or he unexpectedly stumbled upon this boat, if, if you will, if you want to be really loose with your Hebrew there. 
you, but you get this image almost, you've seen movies of uh, a convict who escapes from prison, or maybe someone who commits a crime and he knows the police are after him, and so they're on the lam, and they're running, and they're just making things up as they go because they have no real plan. They just found it a chance to escape, and off they go, and they're making it all up. That's the kind of image we get here with Jonah. He, he's just making this up. God told him to go east. No, I'm going west, and I'll figure something out when I get to where I have to figure something out. There's really no plan. Uh, and he paid the fare. It says he paid the fare of this uh, ship and, and went on board. And, and there's another fascinating term. You're probably getting more Hebrew here than you cared to get. But uh, it, because actually the Hebrew, uh, it, it's, a, it's written in the feminine that he paid her wages. And you think, well, wait a minute. He paid her wages. Who's the her that he's talking about there? Uh, it's the boats, actually. Boats were feminine. They were given the, the feminine gender. And so he paid the boats fair. And when you start thinking through this, and I'm taking some of this from um, a man named W. Dennis Tucker, Jr., actually. And, and he wrote a handbook of, of the Hebrew text for Jonah for uh, Baylor University Press. And it's fascinating. It's very deep and very detailed, but fascinating. And uh, he writes in there that when you translate this, uh, it's the ship, uh, it could be, have come from Tarshish and is going to get ready to go back to Tarshish. And so when he pays the ship's fare, and let me just quote, he writes, arguably, Jonah hired the ship and its entire crew to sail him to Tarshish. In other words, it's not like the ship was ready to go and they're going to sail, but Jonah got there and said, I will pay for everything. Let's just get on board and get out of here. And one of the arguments they will use for that is that the only other people mentioned are the captain and the shipmates. There's no other passengers, and that would be rare. So it's almost as though Jonah, he comes and there's this ship and maybe it's half loaded or unloaded or maybe fully loaded still. He says, I'm going to pay for everything. Let's just get on this ship and get out of here. Because I got to go. And he's going away from the presence of the Lord, so he thinks. And that's mentioned twice in verse 3, if you notice that. From the presence of the Lord, he's trying to flee. And, and you can think, okay, well, the possible meanings of, of uh, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, you know, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and maybe Jonah was there when the word of the Lord came to him. Uh, he was at, at the temple, and, and so he, he flees from the temple because that symbolize the presence of the Lord or getting away from Israel. Another way to think that he's getting away from Israel. He knows Israel is God's chosen people. I'm going to get away from Israel and, and that'll get me away from God. Um, maybe he's thinking, okay, I'll just get out of sight. If God is looking at Nineveh in the east, I'll go west. He's looking over there on the old, the old bait and duck trick here and I'll get out of town this way and he won't see me. Uh, but what we really see Jonah doing here is, is he's trying to escape his commission. He's trying to escape what he's been told to do. He doesn't want Nineveh to uh, repent. We'll see that uh, later on when we get to uh, that part of the book. But here's, here's the thing. Jonah's not just unhappy 
with this task he's been given. But when you look at this, he's got an issue with the Lord himself. That's really what's going on here. He's got an issue with the Lord himself. It's almost as though he's saying, God, what are you doing? This goes against everything I stand for. You know how much I hate those people. You know how much we all hate these people. They are cruel. What are you doing? What are you doing, God? And he realizes that if he goes and tells them that they're wicked and that God is watching, they might repent. And he doesn't want that. We'll find that out later. He does not want that. But also notice this. God does not give Jonah a reason for doing what he's doing. He doesn't provide uh, or explain a, 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 a reason. And here's what we see, that fallen hearts that, that um, haven't been touched by the Holy Spirit, uh, we're prone, uh, prone to, to question God and to rebel if we can't figure out what God is doing. If we don't see the reason behind something, we assume it's not a reason. There is no good reason. If God's saying something, God's word says something, and, and we don't see the reason behind it, our first thought is, well, there must be something wrong with God. Or there must be something wrong with his word. Because if there weren't, it would make sense to me. And if I'm not provided with a reason, I guess there isn't one. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, if really, when you think about it. Just a couple weeks ago, I was uh, reading an article about Adam and Eve that was uh, fascinating. And, and uh, when you think of, of them, in, in Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he really didn't explain anything more. That's just what he told him. Don't eat of it or you will die. But he didn't tell him the reason why. He didn't tell him what would happen, just that you're going to die. It was a command, a simple command. Then the serpent came and talked to Eve and, and put this uh, erroneous idea of wisdom in her head. And, and uh, then when we get to Genesis chapter 6, uh, note this, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, she's got some inadequate theology there, but, but she's looking at this tree. Oh, fruit looks really good. And, you know, you, 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 Lord, it's kind of like the fruit on all these other trees. You can almost follow her thought in this. If, if she were on Twitter or something, you, you could see her thought process going through this. She said, Lord, you designed me to like fruit. And I do like fruit. And if I can eat the fruit from that tree and look at this tree, and this tree is really good and the fruit looks great, well, it makes no sense that I couldn't eat out of this tree, does it, Lord? Why would you make me like this if I want this fruit but can't have it? It makes no sense. Without a reason, I'll just do what I want. It's the same thing that Jonah's here. Lord, you want me to go to those people? As cruel and wicked and dangerous as that is? 
And I tell you what, Lord, if I can't think of a good reason for this command, well, then there isn't one, and you know what? I'm justified to do what I want to do then. We see that all over in our world today. And in our weakest moments, we see that in ourselves. Lord, I don't know the reason. So there must not be a good reason. And I'll do what I want. I'll do what I want. And that's why scripture often refers to humans as stubborn, stiff-necked, insolent, and unwilling to submit. Because without the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what we are. And we see that with Jonah. And Jonah, if you remember in verse 2, he was told to arise. Here's what happens here. He's told to arise. The, the word is kum in Hebrew. Instead, he, he goes down. Notice that he goes down to Joppa. Yarad is the Hebrew word there. And actually in verse 3, that word in the Hebrew is used twice. It gets translated only once, the Yarad. He goes down to Joppa, but also uh, in the Hebrew, he goes down uh, to the ship. And then in verse 5, uh, notice he goes down to the inner part of the ship. Eventually, they throw him overboard. He goes down into the water, down into the fish of a be or into the belly of a fish. He was supposed to arise, and he starts going down and down, 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 and that's what happens when we don't obey God. Down, 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 and Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish because of his sin. But if I can refer back to what Jesus mentioned, Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth because of our sin. He died for our sin because we can be stiff-necked and we can be stubborn and we can be willful and unwilling to submit to God. And so there are many lessons we're going to learn from Jonah as we go through. And some of those are pretty difficult lessons that we learn from Jonah, but our starting point is this, that we have a great God of grace and mercy. In fact, God is more graceful and merciful than Jonah wants him to be. He wants grace and mercy for himself, but he doesn't really want it for the other person. But we have a wonderful God. And we have his wonderful word that reminds us of his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to gain profit by your word. It is a treasure beyond all treasures. It is the fountain from which we can replenish our dry hearts. From your truth, Lord, show us how our words have often been unfaithful to you, how we've been injurious to our fellow humans, empty of grace, full of folly, dishonoring in our calling. Lord, write your words upon our hearts. Inscribe them on our lips. 
Enable us to obey your command. So shall all glory be to you in our reading and living of your word. Through Jesus Christ, amen.